0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted August 18, 2017, We consider the lawsuit filed this past March in a Washington, D.C. federal court that claims the International Finance Corporation, IFC, private lending arm of the World Bank Group, aids and abets too often fatal human rights violations by supporting large landowners in Honduras. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst Michael Moran head of transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David.
1: Quietly this week, a milestone passed with barely a whisper. It's not a major anniversary, 27 years, but it is timely. On August 14, 1980, 27 years ago last Monday, workers in Gdansk, a Baltic shipyard in what was then the Polish People's Republic, did something forbidden under communist rule. They went on strike. After a standoff with authorities, led by a plucky welder named Lech Walesa, they forced Poland's police state to back down. Within a month, the Solidarity Trade Union was born and communists all over shook in their jackboots. That 1980 crack in the Iron Curtain was every bit as important as the first hammer that struck Berlin's famous wall nine years later. Yet today, the cracks in Central Europe are appearing in the very democratic institutions that were founded by the risings of 1989. And it's not just in Poland. In Hungary, the first to open its borders to the West in 1989, an authoritarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has manipulated a weak parliament taking control of the courts and many other formerly independent state institutions. Around the region, anti-immigrant violence and verbal attacks on minority views from government officials and others is rampant. This is a trend echoed, of course, in the European Union and America too. But it's Poland that stands out. This beacon of late 20th century democracy movements now has a leader who has ignored the country's high court and threatened troublesome journalists with jail. Some of this has to do with Europe's dysfunctions, the currency crisis, uncoordinated policies, and ultimately Britain's decision to leave the EU. A lubricant to this slide away from democracy is cheerily supplied by Russian disinformation campaigns and Moscow's outright grants of money to right-wing political parties in the region. And of course, there's the flirtation with these populist blowhards and the foolish questioning of NATO's core mission by the very power the continent once looked to for leadership, the United States. In the end, if Poland or Hungary or others in Central Europe drift away from the freedoms they won in 1989, well, that's their right. They are, at least technically, still democracies. But we shouldn't ignore the accomplices. Russia's cunning meddling, the EU's muddled voice, and the histrionic negligence of today's America. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran.
0: You're listening to World Policy On Air.
2: Now this. Miguel Facuose is the most powerful landowner in Honduras. His private militia is engaged in a violent struggle over land in which dozens of campesinos have been murdered. His businesses have received $75 million in investment by the World Bank. The World Bank has no rules to stop it from funding human rights abusers. Please write to World Bank President Jim Yong Kim and ask that the World Bank respects international laws on human rights.
0: That was a 2013 video plea from the Social Justice Connection, a human rights education and advocacy group in Montreal. Fakuse died two years later, but the bloody struggle persists. Various media organizations have done their part by focusing an international spotlight on the situation in Honduras and at the World Bank. A third and more direct approach is the lawsuit filed this past March in a Washington, D.C. federal court by Earth Rights International on behalf of victims and survivors of the violence. The suit accuses the International Finance Corporation, IFC, private lending arm of the World Bank Group and a subsidiary of aiding and abetting too often fatal human rights violations with its loans and investments. Featured in the new summer issue of World Policy Journal is a close-up on the case by one of the attorneys involved, Lauren Karasik, a clinical professor at the Western New England University School of Law and director of the International Human Rights Clinic there. Her article is titled Investing in Murder, Honduran Farmers Sue World Bank's Lending Arm for Fueling Land Conflict. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Professor Karasik, welcome to World Policy on Air.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: First, describe the area where this struggle is taking place.
2: Sure. The Aguan River Valley stretches inland from the Caribbean coast and northern Honduras. The focal point of the country is the valley's lower reaches, known as the Bajo Aguan, which is a lush and fertile region where African palm oil plantations dominate the landscape.
0: Talk about when and how the violence began. Growing from a government program actually meant to help landless farmers.
2: Poor and landless farmers were enticed to relocate to the area starting in the 1970s through a government-run agrarian reform program. To protect the land from becoming reconcentrated, the government restricted the sale of collectively on land to individuals, and there were also limitations on the amount of land an individual or corporation could amass. But as agribusinesses began to covet the land for export crops, the trouble started.
0: You cite various economic and political factors that gave large landowners and agribusinesses uh, an even greater upper hand, including a 1992 agricultural modernization law and changes in policy at the World Bank. Say more about both. Yep.
2: In 1992, riding a wave of neoliberal reforms, the World Bank was pressuring recipients of loans in Honduras and elsewhere to promote private ownership, along with other structural adjustment policies aimed at free market economics. The Honduran government passed the agricultural modernization law that, along with other policies such as trade liberalization, austerity measures, and currency devaluation, inflicted serious economic hardship on the farmers. And as a result, some of them sold land because the crushing economic pressure left them with few other options, but many others were coerced or intimidated to sell. So the 1990s set in motion a wave of land struggles that's been marred by violence, and it's in this fraught context that the ISC repeatedly loaned money to Dinant directly and indirectly through intermediaries.
0: Uh, Dinant is the company that uh, FACUSA started. Uh, Talk more about the use of fraud and dispossession to enlarge uh, agribusiness holdings and how small farmers tried to push back despite threats.
2: Yep, cooperatives were pressured, threatened, or deceived into selling their land. FACUSA tried to circumvent ownership limitations by using frontman owners for titling purposes. And the farmers sought redress by applying political pressure and appearing to various government agencies and later filing lawsuits, but none of these efforts were successful, um, partly because the legal system is inhospitable to their claims and because lawyers representing the farmers were under intense pressure to abandon their cases. One intrepid lawyer who had achieved some successes, Antonio Zvejo, was later killed in 2012, presumably for his role in representing the farmers. Finally, it was clear to them that the government wouldn't protect their interests and rights, so some of them began peaceful land occupations to reclaim the territory that was rightfully theirs. Many of the farmers initially worked alongside the Honduran National Agrarian Institute to use the agrarian reform platform mechanisms to reclaim land that had been wrongfully taken, but even those efforts were met with violence. A
0: 2009 political coup played a key role, you write, setting the stage for more murder.
2: The coup that ousted the democratically elected president, Mel Zelaya really intensified the human rights crisis in the country. The repressive post-coup governments have targeted land and environmental defenders, journalists, opposition party activists, labor leaders, members of the LGBT and artist communities, and others. And instead of protecting the vulnerable, the country's fragile institutions serve the interests of the powerful. Since then, Honduras has been among the world's deadliest places outside a war zone, at times topping that list. More than 100 farmers have been killed since the coup, and with few exceptions, there's impunity for these killings, and a climate of fear and insecurity persists.
0: The mounting death toll brought some pressure from the international community. Talk about findings by the UN Working Group on Mercenaries and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights.
2: The UN Working Group on Mercenaries visited the area in 2013, and the members were profoundly disturbed uh, by allegations that private security guards were involved in the repression, and they believed that the private security guards were acting in concert with the police and military, which was quite alarming. Later, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which is the human rights arm of the Organization of American States, issued precautionary measures to several of the former collectives, noting that they'd been subjected to violence and persecution, including killings, kidnappings, torture, violent evictions um, since 2010, presumably to coerce land sales. These precautionary measures require that the government ensure that threatened parties are protected and are really only granted in serious, urgent situations that present a risk of irreparable harm. So the first order was granted in 2014, and in uh, December of 2016, the Commission granted precautionary measures to an additional 31 leaders. and many other national and international NGOs have also decried the horrific toll in the Iguan
0: promising to do no harm through the development projects they support the World Bank and IFC created a compliance advisor ombudsman or CAO which also has reported on their failings to protect against violence notably including uh, that Dinant operation that uh, Mago Fakusei started. Talk about those findings, the bank's own.
2: Sure. The CAO's Vice President initiated and audited a loan to Dinant in 2012 in response to the widespread concern about the violence in the region. This was somewhat extraordinary because usually the CAO responds to claims that are submitted by the affected communities themselves. But in this case, those communities were literally under the gun, living with such frequent bloodshed that they couldn't be expected to file a complaint. So, in 2013, the CAO issued its scathing findings about the IFC's lack of compliance with its own sustainability framework, which requires it to assess environmental and social risks of projects it's considering. The watchdog found, among among other things, that the IFC failed to spot or deliberately ignored the serious social, political, and human rights context in which DINON was operating. In, in sum, the ISC knew or should have known that the aguana was the site of a bloody and protracted land conflict that pitted poor farmers against one of the country's most powerful and wealthy oligarchs. They should have taken great pains to avoid inflaming such a conflict, but it didn't.
0: The World Bank last year amended some of its safeguards, your story reports, but also shifted due diligence obligations to its borrowers, who are allegedly connected most directly with the violence and uh, other violations that, uh, of, of clients' rights. What does the bank say about both changes, and what's your view?
2: Well, the bank believes that shifting the due diligence to its borrowers allows greater flexibility to conform with local standards, and that the borrowers are in the best position to assess those local conditions. But this strategy is fraught with peril, since the borrowers and intermediaries are not uninterested parties. They're often focused on profiting from the projects, not the rights and well-beings of the community, communities who are the ostensible beneficiaries. It's, it's like charging the fox with guarding the hen house. And this is especially risky in fragile and conflict-affected areas where the rule of law is elusive. And, in fact, the case in the iguana is emblematic of the grave risks of such a strategy and the resulting harm.
0: The IFC is also withholding a big chunk of funds expected by Dinant. What's the impact of that on conditions in Honduras, uh, the eruptions of violence, and on your case in Washington?
2: Well, first of all, the farmers have already suffered grave and irreparable harm from a loan that never should have been made. And the threats and violence in the region persist while the IFC continues to engage with Dinant. But even if the IFC ultimately cancels the rest of the loan, a move that's long overdue, it hasn't provided the farmers with a remedy for the harms, and without any accountability, the ISC will likely continue to make lawless, uh, loans that, can, that ignore its own safeguards, and those harmed, like the farmers in the Iguan, will be, not, be denied justice. That's really an egregious disservice to the very population the IFC is intended to lift up. Um, I, I should note that Dinant, although it's not a party to the lawsuit, strenuously objects to allegations that has played any role in the violence afflicting the region.
0: To what degree is your suit impacted by the ruling in a different D.C. circuit court case uh, brought by fishing and farming communities in India that the IFC enjoys, quote, absolute immunity, unquote, as an international organization with the same rights under U.S. law as a foreign government? One judge on that panel declared it was wrongly decided.
2: The Earth has filed a, position, a petition to the full D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals asking the entire circuit to reconsider the decision of the three-judge panel that upheld absolute immunity in that case. They are confident the full panel will find against sweeping immunity, and that's really for three reasons. First, it exceeds the immunities enjoyed by foreign governments. Second, it conflicts with multiple Supreme Court precedents, and finally, it runs afoul of the IFC's own development mission, which entails reducing poverty without harming those affected by its projects.
0: And more to the point, in your case, uh, you say that a subsidiary of the IFC that's, that's involved in your case is clearly not immune.
2: Yeah, the subsidiary isn't recognized as an international organization under the U.S. statute that confers immunity. Hmm.
0: How far from an initial verdict do you think your case is at the moment, uh, presumably to be followed by appeals no matter uh, which side wins, uh, or is there the chance of a settlement down the road?
2: I'm sorry, I can't comment on pending litigation.
0: So you have no idea how long this this suit is, is likely to stay in court?
2: Yeah, it's not really something I feel comfortable commenting on at this point.
0: All right, well, thank you for giving this uh, the background and the update on this case, and we'll keep watching it. Professor Karasik, thank you. Thank you. Lauren Karasik is a clinical professor at the Western New England University School of Law and director of the International Human Rights Clinic there. She's also one of the attorneys involved in the case she detailed for the new World Policy Journal summer issue, headlined Investing in Murder, Honduran farmer sue World Bank's lending arm for fueling land conflict. In the new WPJ summer issue, cover line Justice Denied, you'll also find articles about how Egypt's lawmakers codify oppression, what imperils New Berlin, why nature needs legal rights, and much more. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim Editor Carolyn Preston, Managing Editor Laurel Jarambeck, Podcast Producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.